This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We believe this will be our third to the last program broadcast here at KDBS. We've had a 14-year run, or pretty close to it. It's been a lot of fun, but we think all good things must pass. Radio Parallax will continue as a podcast on our website, radioparallax.com. We hope to put together a few more shows for our friends up in Chico on KZFR. I do want to note what a great privilege it has been to be on this station on Thursdays at 5 o'clock every week. There were three public affairs programs that were here when we arrived that will survive us. Ron Glick and Richard Estes were doing Speaking in Tongues when we got here, and Richard has continued that good work, and we wish Richard well in persisting in that endeavor. This Week in Science was here when we arrived, and although only one of the original members, in this case Kirsten Sanford, is still with the program, they continue to titillate us with stories in the science vein. It was fun to have appeared on This Week in Science from Cairns, Australia, back in 2012. It was also a pleasure to have appeared on Richard's show on more than one occasion. But the guy who was here when we arrived and who is still here as we leave and who has done it all by his lonesome self would be Dr. Andy Jones. Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour appears on this station every Wednesdays at 5 o'clock. What a run. And uh, Dr. Andy did celebrate what I believe is his 39th birthday earlier this week. I was able to join him in some of his entourage at DeVere's Pub after Dr. Andy did his usual excellent job of hosting a pub quiz. He has agreed to come on the show either next week or the week after and say goodbye. We'll also try and talk a bit about a new book which he has coming out. And man, he just, he just seems to crank them out. You can bet that'll be interesting. There's an awful lot of people we'd like to thank in the next few weeks, but there's so many, it's just a daunting task. We'll spend the whole time thanking people. So let's just say today, to all of you who rendered us aid, and you know who you are, thank you. You know, in this show, week after week, we've talked about people we want to bring you, and it looks as though we, we may miss the mark on one or two. I don't know that we're going to get Daniel Ellsberg on this program before we check off of KDVS. We've talked about bringing Emily Lakdawalla of the Planetary Society on, and ha- happily, happily, Emily will be joining us in our second segment today to talk about some of the fascinating things streaming in from our space probes, whizzing about and taking a look at our neighboring planets. And on next week's program, we will bring you Margaret Talbot, the sister of David Talbot, who spoke to us on last week's program about his wonderful book, The Devil's Chessboard. Margaret has written a book about her illustrious father, actor, Lyle Talbot. And if you're a cinematic uh, fan, you know who I'm talking about. And if you don't, you know his face because he was in everything. And he really did live one of those Hollywood legend stories about a guy coming out to try his hand in the silver screen back in the 30s. And voila, next thing you know, he's a movie star. And if I might digress just a moment, and who's going to stop me? I would note it was a great pleasure to have driven down last week to the Castro Theater in San Francisco, where they were screening Three on a Match, featuring Lyle Talbot. This was a movie created pre-Haze Code, which was pretty racy. We'll talk a bit more about it on next week's program. My understanding was that uh, the four 
progeny of Lyle Talbot, David, whom you know, Margaret, whom you hopefully will know, and also Stephen, who's a damn good film documentarian, as well as her sister Cindy, who runs the family practice program up in Portland, Oregon. We're apparently all together for the first time to see a pre-Hays Code movie featuring their dad. I, I thought Lyle Talbot was pretty good in it. Evidently, one of the uh, Talbot grandchildren posted on Facebook that people should come down to the Castro and watch Humphrey Bogart beat up on Grandpa. And indeed, in the movie, Lyle Talbot plays a ne'er-do-well who is one up by a guy who's even nastier and meaner in the person of Humphrey Bogart. The movie also featured Joan Blondell and Dvorak and a young Betty Davis. Before the screening, Margaret Talbot said a few words, and I think the whole audience had to laugh at the fact that when the director was later asked about his three leading ladies in the picture and their future, he said, oh, well, Joan Blondell, for sure, big star. And Dvorak, no doubt about it, going to be a star. Betty Davis, eh. (laughs) All right, we got a lot of ground to cover, so let's do it as we like to do by starting with On This Date in History. Our date today is the 10th of March. Speaking of movies, it was on March 10th in 1902 in the case Edison versus American Mutoscope Company. A U.S. Court of Appeals ruled that despite his claims, Thomas Edison did not, in fact, invent the movie camera. Also in a cinematic vein, on March 10th in 1918, Warner Brothers released its first film, Four Years in Germany. The American company failed to become a major player in the cinema world until 1927 when it released The Jazz Singer, the first feature film with sound. And on March 10th in 1938, for the first time since the American Academy Awards, better known to you as the Oscars, began, which was in 1927, the winners' names were kept secret until their announcement at the gala ceremony. I didn't realize for the first 11 years people were denied the, and the winner is. And speaking of Betty Davis, on that same day, March 10th in 1938, The American film Jezebel opened. It marked the breakthrough for Betty Davis, whose portrayal of a hot-tempered Southern Belle would win her an Oscar for Best Actress. And in a final non-movie-related item, we have that it was on March 10th in 1959. There was an uprising by Tibetans against Chinese forces that began to occupy the country a decade earlier. The rebellion was triggered by fears that the Tibetan spiritual leader, the Dalai Lama, was about to be abducted to Beijing. To protect him, 300,000 Tibetans surrounded his residence. Fighting ensued. Outnumbered and outgunned, tens of thousands of Tibetans died or disappeared in the uprising. The Dalai Lama and thousands more fled to exile in neighboring India. The continued Chinese occupation of Tibet and the human rights violations associated with it have been a focus of international protest ever since. Our quote today, and this comes as follow-up on our discussion of Alan Turing a few weeks back, is from the scientist B.F. Skinner, who once said, the real problem is not whether machines think, but whether men do. We may have more to say about that later. Our quote of the day comes from novelist Arthur Kostler, who said, the more original a discovery, the more obvious it seems afterward. Our anecdote of the week is that apparently... An Australian man of Vietnamese origin is rather furious that Facebook keeps deleting his account because the site refuses to believe that his name is Fu Da Bic. What you must keep in mind is that this is spelled P-H-U-C-D-A-T-B-I-C-H. Now, Facebook 
bans users from trying to evade its prohibition on profanity by using cleverly spelled fake names. After being kicked off the site three times, Fu Da Bik posted a photo of his passport to prove, to prove to Facebook his name is real. Said Bick, I find it highly irritating that nobody seems to believe me when I say that my full legal name is how you see it. Well, we appreciate his position on this, but I think we can anticipate problems for the foreseeable future with that spelling. Maybe Foo could change it to Larry. Our stat of the day is that almost 20% of Donald Trump's supporters disapprove of Abraham Lincoln's executive order, that would be the Emancipation Proclamation, that freed all the slaves in the Confederacy. Another 17% of Trump supporters say they, they weren't sure whether that was a good idea or not. This is according to a recent YouGov poll. For our good news of the week, we have this item. Although some parents are still resisting getting their teens inoculated with the HPV vaccine, along with other vaccines, thanks to a lot of bogus data, new government research shows that the Gardasil vaccine has been enormously effective. Over the past decade that it's been available, the CDC researchers found the vaccine has reduced HPV infections among teenage girls by a stunning 64%. Infections infections among women between 20 and 24 years of age also fell by 34%. HPV is a common sexually transmitted disease. In fact, it is the most common sexually transmitted disease. It causes genital warts and, even more importantly, later in life can cause cervical cancer. It, in fact, is believed to be the cause of cervical cancer. Unfortunately, despite the vaccine's effectiveness, only 40% of girls and 20% of boys between 13 and 17 are inoculated, largely because parents fear it will encourage children to be promiscuous. To get around these fears, an infectious disease specialist, Joseph Bocchini Jr., says doctors should put the emphasis on preventing cancer, not sex. The infection is sexually transmitted, but that doesn't need to be part of the conversation. He argues we don't really need to discuss how people become infected with every vaccine-preventable disease. And finally, our joke of the week. A police officer in Beverly Hills is driving around at 3.30 in the morning, and he spots a man weaving. He pulls him over, goes over to the window, and says, Sir, have you been drinking? The man says, I'll have you know, officer, I'm right now driving to attend a lecture on the evils of carousing out at night and drinking. Policeman says, yeah, and who's giving a lecture like that at 3.30 in the morning? Guy looks at him and says, my wife. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for overcompensating after a new book by two British historians claims that medical records prove that Adolf Hitler had one testicle and that he also suffered from a rare condition called hypospadias that resulted in his having, quote, a micropenis, unquote. Radio Parallax does find the theory that Hitler overcompensated for his deficiencies 
somewhat plausible, but does hasten to add that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. All right, on the other hand, it was a bad week last week for constant connectivity after Israeli researchers found that men who regularly carry a smartphone within 20 inches of their groin were significantly more likely to have poor sperm quality. One researcher said if you're trying to have a baby and it doesn't happen, it could be your mobile phone habit that is to blame. And finally, it was surely an ugly week last week for the Communist Party of the People's Republic of China with the news that Beijing has now replaced New York as the billionaire capital of the world, having acquired 32 new billionaires last year. The Chinese capital now has 100 billionaires. That compares with New York's 95. Moscow is third with 66 billionaires. Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong would not approve. And from the week magazine's Only in America file, we have the following two items. First, that two Georgetown University law professors have accused a fellow faculty member of, quote, traumatizing, unquote, conservative students by criticizing Antonin Scalia. Evidently, Professor Gary Peller had objected to the university's, quote, unquote, unmitigated praise of the late Supreme Court justice and had called Scalia a blatantly partisan voice of intolerance to which Professors Randy Barnett and Nick Rosencrantz said that criticism had left young admirers of Scalia feeling traumatized, hurt, shaken, and angry. And Mr. Milne, I believe you have an actual tape, an audio from these professors? Yeah, wah! And on the flip side, we have this. University of Wisconsin officials labeled two students racist for posting photos of themselves wearing a dark, exfoliating facial mask. Yes, evidently Chancellor Beverly Copper mistook the skin care product for blackface and called the photo hurtful and destructive. Copper later said the students should have considered the implications of sharing that photo publicly. No word yet on whether the University of Wisconsin plans to ban dark, exfoliating facial masks. Well, we certainly hope so. We would not like to see anybody hurt by this. And speaking of chancellors, UC Davis's own has been in the news of late. Apparently, Linda Katehi had uh, accepted a position on the board of DeVry Educational Group, a for-profit college under investigation currently by two federal agencies. Before that, she had also served on the board of John Wiley & Sons, a publisher of textbooks and academic journals, from whom she received $420,000 in stocks and cash. Now, why the UC Davis chancellor would step into a situation um, at DeVry University, as it and other for-profit schools face increasing scrutiny from federal officials for possibly deceiving students about job and income prospects, to quote from a piece by Diana Lambert regarding this, when UC Davis Chancellor Linda P. B. Katehi was named last week to a $70,000-a-year board seat overseeing DeVry Educational Group, public interest groups and Assemblyman Kevin McCarty were stunned. Katehi stepped into a situation fraught with problems, they said, as DeVry and other for-profit schools faced increasing scrutiny from federal officials for possibly deceiving students about job and income prospects. 
They questioned why she would bestow the stature of the University of California on a for-profit institution facing serious questions. Of course, Radio Parallax would point out that money is a possible answer to that question. The Chancellor elected to quit DeVry on uh, the 29th of February. Her spokesperson at UC Davis, Gary Delson, said, The Chancellor's explanation was, Quote, I initially chose to accept the appointment because I believed I could contribute to improving the educational experiences of the students attending DeVry institutions. But in light of a variety of other issues that have come to the fore, I've determined that I am unable to serve. For its part, DeVry said last January that it intends to vigorously contest the FTC complaint, which it believes relies on anecdotal examples that exaggerate the allegations but does not prove them. Students cannot receive Cal grants to attend the for-profit institution, according to the California Student Aid Commission. Under state law, colleges are ineligible for Cal grants when they have high loan default rates and low graduation rates, or both. For its part, federal officials take issue with DeVry's 2013 claim that their graduates earn more than graduates of other universities. DeVry allegedly counted the jobs of students who were already employed before attending the university, as well as graduates who worked in other fields outside their area of study, including volunteer jobs and low-wage employment. The B notes that other for-profit universities have faced scrutiny and penalties in recent years. Corinthian Colleges, which operated Heald College and others, closed last year after a series of government sanctions undermined the company's financial model. And finally, we want to note the passing in this section of the First Lady of California, the former First Lady of California and the nation, Nancy Reagan. Nancy Reagan was always a controversial figure surrounding her husband. Nancy Reagan generated quite a bit of controversy as uh, Ronald Reagan's wife. There are many, Michael Deaver among them, their, uh, their prominent aide who would have said she had an awful lot to do with the Reagan presidency. She met Ronnie when he was president of the Screen Actors Guild. They appeared together in, I think, Reagan's last feature film, Hellcats of the Navy. After that picture, Nancy Reagan quit her career to become a wife and mother. She gave birth to Patty Reagan seven months after marrying Ronald and tried valiantly to convince the obstetricians to note that Patty was premature by two months which, to their credit, they refused to do. This fact did evoke a bit of derision when, in the 80s, Nancy launched her Just Say No program to combat drug abuse. Apparently, choosing to just say no was quite situational. This correspondent has told the story previously of sitting in the front row, about 30 feet below where this broadcast is originating, to see Nancy and Ronald Reagan here in Freeborn Hall and what was then Governor Reagan's only appearance before UC audience during his uh, tenure. I'm not going to tell that story again, but I did get a chance to, to witness the glances that went back and forth between those two, and it was, it was quite interesting. When the governor looked a bit unsure, as he did several times in the evening, he would cast a glance back at Nancy, whose adoring look seemed to inevitably revive him. There's a lot being said about Nancy Reagan, a lot of it good. She allegedly waded into foreign policy when Ronnie was president and sided supposedly with aiding moderate voices within the administration who wanted Ronald Reagan to negotiate with the Soviet Union in a battle against hawkish elements within the government. That is possible. But the single fact that always 
flabbergasted this correspondent was the fact that while Ronald Reagan was president, the presidential schedule depended upon getting the, uh, getting the thumbs up from astrologer Joan Quigley. Quigley later wrote a book about the experience titled, What Does Joan Say?, which is what Ronnie would always ask Nancy when it came to scheduling events according to, you know, according to the celestial alignments. Nancy Reagan did not like Donald Reagan, Reagan's chief of staff, and it was he who revealed to the public this little matter of the astrological consultations after Nancy got him fired. For her part, Nancy Reagan would call the reliance on Joan Quigley a crutch, and it certainly turned into an embarrassment to the White House once it was revealed. Still, she never made apologies for going to what was supposedly whatever lengths she could to protect the man she loved. And said, quote, and if that interferes with affairs of state, then so be it, unquote. And finally, I think I'll close with a bit was posted on Facebook by one of KDVS's former general managers. And I don't think he'll object to me doing this. In this case, Stephen Valentino. He quoted from Kitty Kelly's book on Nancy Reagan to note that Reportedly, the Reagans once smoked marijuana provided by Alfred Bloomingdale, the department store heir. She reported that Nancy consulted not one, but two astrologers to help pull her husband out of the slump caused by, quote, the malevolent movements of Uranus and Saturn, unquote. Better known to you and me as the Iran-Contra scandal. I have to further quote one wag who responded to that posting saying, malevolent movements of Uranus is a rich title to, well, anything. And yes, I know it would be funnier if I pronounced it Uranus, but it would be unfair to mispronounce the name of our seventh planet. As an aside, when Sir William Herschel discovered Uranus, a completely unexpected discovery, that of a, a, a new planet back in the 1700s, he tried to name it after the King of England, George. It didn't stick. And for more on that interlude, we refer you to our previous interview on this program with Neil deGrasse Tyson, found on our archives at radioparallax.com. Well, let's keep talking about planets, although not of the astrological nature, with someone we wanted to speak to for a long time, Emily Lakdawalla of the Planetary Society. We will do that after a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax. 